Physics World. Hello and welcome to the Physics World Stories podcast. I'm Andrew and with me today are Laura Hiscott, the books editor at Physics World, and Mateen Durrani, editor-in-chief at Physics World. And it is, as promised, my favourite episode of the year because we're looking at the best physics books or certainly some of the themes around physics books that have happened over this year. And we're doing it slightly differently to the way that we have done before. But uh, we have a new person on the podcast, Laura, and Laura is bringing something rather wonderful. And you're going to need your notebooks for this because Laura's bringing a quiz and you should play along. But you also, as you will know, regular listeners, will need a notebook for this because you're going to be noting down some ideas for your present lists, maybe for yourself and maybe presents you're going to buy for other physics lovers as we talk about some of the most interesting physics books in this year. Um, Laura, since we haven't heard from you before, can you just tell us a bit about you? Yeah, sure. So um, I'm the reviews editor at Physics World. Um, I joined in March this year. Um, I studied physics and then went into um, science writing. I've had a great opportunity to see loads of new science books this year, more than I think I've ever seen before. So um, it's been really interesting and exciting to see all of those. Yeah. yeah. I've enjoyed it's, it a lot. It, it don't tell everyone, right? But be, being paid to, to read books <laughs> is quite a good thing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's a good deal. And if this is the first time that you've heard Laura, then you're very badly behaved because Physics World has a weekly podcast and sometimes you will have heard Laura's voice on there and you'll continue to do so. So head on over to your podcast provider and subscribe to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. <laughs> uh, Mateen, how are you doing? Not too bad. Uh, last time we were on this podcast, I think I did my ribs in and this week, to, to, in honour of that, I've done my back in. I'm sorry to hear that. Well, there's nothing better if you've hurt your back than to read a book or indeed be on a podcast. So let's do let's do that. Laura, I'm quite keen to do this quiz. I know um, the topic of the quiz is certainly not my specialist subject, um, so I'm not I'm not sort of hoping to win, although maybe getting one or two right. But before we're going to do uh, talk about one of the books this year and then come to the quiz, um, but. Laura, just tell us a bit about the quiz so we can get excited about it first. The quiz is based on a book that I read earlier this year called Hawking Hawking, The Selling of a Scientific Celebrity. Um, and this is a biography of Stephen Hawking that was written by Charles Seif, who is an author and journalist with a background in maths. Um, and he didn't have any kind of official approval to write this book. Actually, it caused a bit of a stir when it came out. Um, it hasn't managed to find a publisher in the UK, um, but it's a sort of warts and all biography. Um, and there are lots of really interesting and fun anecdotes um, in the book about Stephen Hawking's life. Um, and I really enjoyed reading about that kind of human side of him um, in the book as well. So I've come up with a quiz Um based on on this book the things that I learned from it about Stephen Hawking that I didn't know before that's cool I really like the title Hawking Hawking that's just fun isn't it it is yeah it was perfect opportunity I guess <laughs> um, <laughs> that name so it hasn't got a publisher in the UK do you think it will I have no idea actually um I know that um, team? Charles Seif was quite disappointed um but yeah but he said he didn't know why 
he's quite an eminent writer. He, I think he writes the New York Times quite a bit, you know, and the books, you know, you really enjoyed it, Laura. Um, yeah, yeah, I did. I don't know why it's not got a publisher. I mean, obviously, you can buy the books um, online these days quite easily, but um, maybe it's because he's such a sort of venerated icon. No one wants to uh, have anything that's less than um, completely complimentary about him. Um, I know the guy who wrote a famous biography of Paul Dirac called um, Graham Farmello. He's doing an authorised biography of Stephen Hawking, authorised by the family. And um, that's probably going to be a very different kind of book and one that will sort of, I imagine, portray him in a favourable light. Um, But yeah, there's this whole mystery about Stephen Hawking. Um, You know, if it hadn't been for his famous books and his um, struggles with illness, you know, would he have been as revered in the community? Probably not. Um, you know, he's a very, very talented scientist, but, you know, there are plenty of other talented scientists out there in that field who perhaps aren't as well known and don't have that um, instant recognition. So I'm surprised that there hasn't been a publisher. Um, that's really interesting. and I don't know why. Mm. Is it, uh, Laura, is it particularly sort of negative about him? Um, I thought it was quite balanced, to be honest. Um because of the title and what I'd heard about it before I started reading it, um, I was expecting it to be a lot more negative than it was. Um, but actually, I thought it it just kind of was very honest and, you know, showed him in a good light at some times and, and less so at other times. Um, yeah, I I didn't come away feeling like it had completely changed my view of who Stephen Hawking was and that he he was an awful person or anything um yeah I remember you said Laura you said it was quite an unusual book because it goes back in time doesn't it to tell the science it kind of starts from the present day and then goes backwards chronologically which is quite unusual and I think that was didn't always quite work for you did it uh not not always no it it was a really interesting idea and it kind of related to Stephen Hawking's work, I suppose, um, as well. And in, in that he often thought about, you know, the, the physics of like reversing time and the universe uh, shrinking and so on. Um, but I think it was quite tricky because um, with scientific research, it progresses over time and builds, builds up. So um, starting with his later work, um, the author kind of had to explain the earlier work in order to explain the later work. And then as he went back, um, we kind of came to where that earlier work had happened and had a second explanation. Um, and it it felt like it jumped around a little bit too much in time um, for me to keep track of all the time. But um, yeah. yeah, that's interesting. The thing with Stephen Hawking, because I'm a lecturer in science communication, right? so we talk about Stephen Hawking a fair a fair amount in, in, in this side of things. And one of the things that's particularly interesting about him from that angle is the way that he sort of used humour and um, personality to sell what is at least considered a very complex area of science. Um, is that Does that come across? Do they talk about that? Because that's my initial reaction to the, to the title, Hawking Hawking, would be about the kind of salesman side of him. 
Yes, definitely. Yeah, they they talk a lot about how he kind of crafted this image of himself. Um, and it wasn't always him that was responsible for that. He certainly like had a part in it. Um, and there'll be a few anecdotes relating to that. Um, in the quiz as well. But um, other other times it was publishers um who who kind of joined in on crafting that image and selling him as this um the scientific celebrity um and sometimes um capitalizing on um on his illness actually in a way um there is a story where one of his friends um kind of warns him in advance um that when he publishes a brief history of time the publisher might um sort of use his disability to kind of market the book in a way um which which was another factor perhaps in, in why he became so famous um, that's interesting i think um i'd quite like to do a quiz now we'll look, come back to some more books after after the quiz but laura take it away yeah so um this first question um is about his birthday and it's also to do with how he he marketed himself in a way um because he was born on the anniversary of the death of a very famous scientist um which scientist was it so a galileo galilei b johannes kepler c michael faraday or d james clark maxwell born on the anniversary of the death of a scientist because he also died on the anniversary of someone <laughs> that's even more confusing now um I think it was, I'm pretty sure it was Galileo. I'm going to say Galileo. Okay, do, do you know, I was going to say, honestly, <laughs> I was going to say Galileo, but only because it was a complete guess. You might be basing it on something better than that, Mateen. Yeah, it's just buried in the back of my mind. Pre- mm. Pretty sure it's Galileo. Well, you've you've both got it right. It, it was Galileo. Oh. That's right. He was born on the 8th of January, 1942, and Galileo... Um, died 300 years to the day before that um and Saif actually uses this as an example of Hawking crafting that public image because um he used to repeat this a lot that he was born 300 years to the day after (laughs) Galileo died to kind of give this image of himself as the kind of intellectual heir of great yeah. scientists um, it wasn't there the whole julian calendar and all that i bet it wasn't exactly 300 years because they moved the calendars around uh, is, right. that... is that to do with introducing different months or mm. uh, they moved right. the calendar eight days forward so i'm not sure how scientific it is to think that you being born on the same day that somebody died makes you some way their heir it doesn't seem very scientific thinking to me it doesn't it's I pure coincidence yeah. isn't it <laughs> for example today the day that we're recording december the 8th this time last year I broke my leg. My daughter has banned me from going outside the house today in case it happens again. That's not scientific thinking. (laughs) But I've forgiven her on the basis that we can watch Star Wars. That's my thinking. (laughs) That's when you fell in your pond, isn't it? Yes. Don't tell everyone I fell in the pond. (laughs) I was trying to get something from the garage and then fell in the pond. It was just, it was pathetic. Anyway, question two. Come on, let's move on. This question is to do with um, Hawking's childhood. Um, At what age did Stephen Hawking learn to read? A, two years, B, three years, C, five years, or D, eight years? God, I remember being able to read letters when I was three. Could that, or am I making that up? <laughs> um, he was probably either really early or really late, 
or really average, which doesn't help. Um, I reckon <laughs> three. I'm going to go with three in the middle. I'm going to go with eight, just you know, for the sake of being different. Andrew, you you got the point there. Oh um, yes, what? He was eight years old. Outrageous. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so you you'd think that he learned very very early because of how clever he was, but um, he he wrote a memoir in 2013. Um, And he said that the first school he attended was a very progressive school where you were supposed to learn to read without realising you were being taught. Um, And he said that he remembered complaining to his parents that he wasn't learning anything. Okay. Well, I'm very pleased. I think we should call off the quiz at this point when I'm winning. (laughs) 2 one Quit while you're ahead. Absolutely. As you'll see, this will not continue, this theme. But but let's go to question three. The next question is about when he was an undergraduate at Oxford University. Um, He was a member of a sports club. Um, So which sports club did he join? A, the rugby club. B, the boat club. C, the fencing club. Or D, the running club. I'm going to go first on this one. And I'm going to say boating because I have a vague recollection of something from the film the film with Eddie Redmayne, (laughs) that there was boating in that. So I'm going for boating. Ooh, what did we say again? Fencing, rugby? Boat club or running? Ooh. Oh, poo. I think I'm going to go for um, running. They did a lot of running in Oxford. Isn't that what you do at Oxford? You do chariots of fire, running, I'm going to say. Andrew has it again. Um... Oh, what? (laughs) Oh, no. This is amazing. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, um... Yeah, he was the cox in the boat club, um, but it sounds like he sometimes decided to be a bit mischievous um, because the boatman who was in charge of putting the crews together is quoted in the book saying, um, the question always with Stephen was, should we make him coxswain of the first eight or the second eight? Some coxes can be very steady people, you see. He was an adventurous type. You never quite knew what he was going to do <laughs> so i i don't know there was no more details given i don't know whether he would mess up the rhythm of the the rowing or what he used to do but um that gives you an insight into yeah. his personality i always enjoyed that about him the sort of cheekiness that you know you knew yeah. you, you didn't know what he was going to do but you'd know it would be cheeky was kind of how it came across <laughs> um so it's it's three one to me at the moment i'm just going to rest on my laurels slightly <laughs> and just say that's particularly good although having been and this will be only of um, relevance to anybody who's uh, kind of got an interest in english football but having been a west ham fan all my life i'm fully aware of the fact that Martina's going to come back and win Seven three. I doubt that very much. I'm a Birmingham fan, so uh, we generally don't come back from when we have fewer goals in the opposition. That's, well, that's um... so. The the next question, next opportunity to get back in the game. Um, again about Stephen Hawking as an undergraduate. Um, he was caught by the police and told off for something during his time at Oxford. Um, and nothing more came of it. Um, but what was he caught doing? A, being drunk and disorderly in public. B, stealing from a shop. C, trespassing on private property. Or D, hanging a message from a bridge. Oof, blimey. It sounds like trespassing because there's a lot of private gardens and whatnot in Oxford. There's different, you know, you've got the parks and university parks, I think, and you're not allowed to go here and there. And 
so I'm going to say that. But on the other hand, it could be the message on the bridge that. No, I'm going to I'm going to go with my gut reaction. I think um, trespassing. He went somewhere where he should. Okay, I'm going to go with drunken disorderly. I just like the sound of that. It sounds fun. <laughs> well, it was um, neither one of those two. It was. Um, Matini should have gone for hanging a message from the bridge. Um, he was caught suspending a plank with one of his friends um, from one of the bridges over the river, and the plank had the message "Vote Liberal" painted on it um, <laughs> because he was politically quite left-leaning. I think he was vocal um, about his politics um, throughout his life, um, and actually, when he was first admitted to hospital and um, when he started experiencing symptoms. Um, he refused to let his parents pay for a private room for him because of his socialist principles. Really? So, All right. Yeah, the next question is also about um, police, actually, um, because apparently he was familiar with the Californian police. Um, so I've got three options of why he might have been. Um, a, for having riotous parties. Um, B, for dangerous driving, or C, possession of illegal drugs? Oh, I don't think he was on drugs. I can't believe that. No. I don't think that. drugs. Um, I think it was the dangerous driving, because, yeah, I'm going to go with da- dangerous driving. I can see that. I can see that being an argument. I can see him sort of being interested in fast cars and that sort of thing. But I think I'm going to go with um, parties, although it is currently very very um on vogue to deny that parties ever happened (laughs) let's go with party okay mateen you're starting to catch up um it's the dangerous driving apparently um this was a lifelong thing um early on in his relationship with his first wife jane um she apparently hung on for dear life if they went somewhere by car um and although he lost the ability to drive himself um he used to encourage others because uh, when he was in California with his doctoral student, Marika Taylor, um, he insisted that she do a U-turn in a place where it said no U-turn and the police pulled them over and Taylor said that when they saw who was in the car, they said, oh, hello, Dr. Hawking, it's you again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. Yeah, yeah. But there is a tradition of physicists being really bad drivers because they're so sort of abstracted in their own thoughts that they're sort of concentrating on um you know the stuff i've there was one story about a famous phys- well relatively famous physicist in bristol who um used to drive well once drove to the university and he was so absorbed in his uh, stuff that all you know he had sort of transparencies on the dashboard and he would sort of fall off and slide off and he was trying to sort of draw in the condensation on the windows little formulae <laughs> while he was driving and people used to get very scared so on the basis of that, that's why I think Hawking, probably in that venerable tradition of bad bad physics drivers, because they're so wrapped <laughs> up in their thoughts that they can't engage with reality. <laughs> I think we've got to do a podcast on that, surely. That's, that's a future episode of the podcast, Bad Physics Drivers. Um, that's, a, that's a whole other podcast, a bit like that um, Gavin and Stacey, James Corden. The James Corden driving with comedians or singing with comedians in cars or whatever it is. You could do driving badly with physicists on a podcast. That would be great. <laughs> I remember once we had an interview with, um, sorry, this is going completely off tangent, with a physicist in Mexico who who was doing an iPad interview with us in his car. And I thought, well, that's a bit unusual. And I was thinking, well, you know, he's just a passenger in the car. And it suddenly transpired he was driving 
wow. through Mexico City while looking into his iPad, which he had propped on the um, dashboard. Sounds dangerous. <laughs> which was a bit scary. Um, oh. We should say that, that anybody listening to this, because we do know that physicists do listen to this, please drive safely. <laughs> it will only matter if you figure out the theory of everything if you're alive to tell other people about it. Exactly. <laughs> Hang on, back to the quiz. It's 2-3. I'm catching up, aren't I? There's only nine questions, so, you know, the pressure's on. The next one is about uh, when he was a 22-year-old graduate student in Cambridge. Um and during this time, he attended a scientific meeting and he stood up and publicly challenged an eminent scientist over an idea that he had just presented to the scientific community for the first time. And apparently it was very embarrassing and the scientist was very angry. So who was the scientist? A, Fred Hoyle. B, Richard Feynman. C, Murray Gellman. Or D, Paul Dirac. I know this, Andrew, so I'm going to let you answer first so you don't just copy me. <laughs> I know oh, I know your trick. <laughs> that seems fair. I, I'm going to go with Fred Hoyle, and I'll tell you why. Because Matisse because, uh, just reacted in a way that suggests that I'm right. <laughs> I, think, I think I remember it from a film or a documentary. That might be the, the Benedict Cumberbatch one that I saw that in, I think. Anyway, I think that's what's so going with Fred Hoyle. Yeah, Fred Hoyle, definitely. Yeah, so you're both right on that one. Um, and this was a story that was also told in another book I've read this year called Flashes of Creation. Um, and yeah, Hoyle was presenting this new idea to the meeting of the Royal Society for the first time. Um, and Hawking stood up and pointed out a flaw in it. And everyone was stunned, thinking that he'd figured it out right there and then. Um, but they didn't know that he was sharing an office um, with someone who was co-writing, uh, co-developing this theory with Hoyle. So he'd seen it in advance and worked out the problem. But rather than telling them before the meeting, he sort of saved it and then gave this dramatic performance, um, kind of gave everyone this picture of this um, this genius whiz kid figuring it out on mm. the spot. Um, yeah. Um, so the with the next question, um, it goes back to uh, something a bit dangerous again, um, because apparently he was quite reckless with his wheelchair and allegedly used it as a weapon against people he didn't like. Um, what is he said to have done when he met Prince Charles? <laughs> a, crashed into him because he was walking too slowly in front of him. <laughs> B, rammed his car because it was blocking his ramp. Or C, ran over his toes. Ooh. Oh. It's currently three, four. I'm more interested in the points. I've got to be Andrew on this. Three, four. <laughs> well, you know, I feel like a sort of uh, like a 1500 meter runner. I don't want to go too early, but um, go on. You, you better answer first, Andrew. Come I do. I like the sound of all of them. To be honest, they all seem perfectly reasonable. I'm going to go with uh, the toes. I think it's the toes as well. Well, you're both right again. Oh. <laughs> Getting into the swing of it now. Um, yeah, he ran over his toes, apparently. Um, although a reporter asked talking about this in 2000, and he's quoted as saying, that's a malicious rumour, I'll run over anyone who repeats it. Uh. <laughs> he did also apparently crash into people who were walking too slowly in front of him, and he did also apparently ram cars that were blocking ramps up onto pavements and stuff. All very um, reasonable. <laughs> the next question is about um, how he often spoke to the press and sometimes um, 
you know, about things that weren't necessarily related to his research. Um, and one topic he used to speak to the media about was the future of humanity and what he thought was a big threat to it. Um, so what did he say concerned him as the biggest threat um, that humanity faced? A, a pandemic, B, nuclear war, C, artificial intelligence, and D, more intelligent aliens from other planets? I, do you know, I'm going to answer that one first, just to give you a chance to come back, Mateen. Um, I'm going to say um, aliens. He had a real thing about aliens. I've got this funny feeling it was AI. I've got this feeling that he was... Mm. Mm. But listen, I've got to... Um, if I... If I give the same answer as you, Andrew. I'm not going to catch you up. We're both going to be right. So I'm going to have to go for AI and risk it. Well, the the risk paid off. You've caught up. <laughs> it, result. It was oh, AI. The equaliser. 6-6. Six, six. <laughs> yeah. So in, in 2014, um, he told the BBC that the development of full artificial intelligence could spell the end of the human race. Um. But uh, Charles Life kind of uses this as an example of how he sometimes spoke about topics that were outside of his field of expertise, because lots of other scientists challenged him on it. But um... yeah, we, I do that all the time. So. <laughs> <laughs> I think everyone loves to do that. So, um, so that this has worked out well. You're you're both on six points, and it's the last question. Oh, no. um, <laughs> so who's going to win? Um, <laughs> So uh, Stephen Hawking, um, I think you mentioned this earlier, Mateen, with the first question, because he actually died on the anniversary of another very famous scientist's birthday. Um, so which scientist was it? Tycho Brahe, Nikola Tesla, Albert Einstein or Richard oh, Feynman? Mateen knows this then, presumably. I think I'm pretty certain it's um, Albert Einstein's birthday. You have, have now told you said that, that so... Um, now, just for the sake of for the sake of possibly um, the last minute winner, um, I'm going to go with. <laughs> I think I think it's Einstein. I but I, just for the sake of the the last possible excitement, I'm going to go with Tycho Brahe. So, um, Mateen, you've overtaken. <laughs> you you've tipped him to the post. Oh, um, you were too honourable, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's it's the West Ham fan in me. I always like to lose in the last minute, having been <laughs> well ahead earlier in the match. Yeah, he um he died on the fourteenth of March two thousand eighteen, which was one hundred and thirty nine years to the day after Einstein's birthday. Um, right. and Charles Seif says that he thinks that Hawking would have found that this hilarious <laughs> <laughs> while he was dying. <laughs> I think he's probably right. You mentioned another book in the process of the quiz there, Nora. Thanks for the quiz. I thoroughly enjoyed it until the last question, um, <laughs> I think, so, which was Flashes of Creation. Do you want to tell us a bit about that one? Yeah, yeah. So um, this is a joint biography called Flashes of Creation, George Gamow, Fred Hoyle and the Great Big Bang Debate. Um, this was written by Paul Halpern, who's a physicist and author of many previous popular science books. And the reason that the book focuses on these two scientists is because they were the public faces of um, the debate around whether the universe ever had a beginning. Um, and Fred Hoyle actually coined the term Big Bang. 
and uh, he was actually mocking it. Well, th there's some debate around whether he was mocking it um, exactly, but he coined the term Big Bang, but he didn't believe in it. He thought that the universe had always been the same. Um, they were developing their ideas um, after um, Edwin Hubble had shown that um, galaxies further away were um, actually receding at a, at a higher speed um, than ones closer to us, um, which implied that the universe was expanding. Um, and so George Gamow's idea was that um, the universe must have been really, really small and dense to begin with, um, whereas Fred Hoyle thought that it was always roughly the same and um, matter was kind of gradually being created to um, to make up for the expansion to keep it at the same density. Um, and they had a big debate over it um, that was quite public. It was all quite civilised, wasn't it? And um, they both wrote um, they both wrote books on, on it um, themselves at the time, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's right. In, um, in the 1950s, um, they both wrote books. Um, so Gamov's was called the, the Creation of the Universe. Um, and Hoyle's was actually called The Nature of the Universe. Um, and that one was based on, I think, a series of um, radio episodes that he did about his ideas. And that really interested me, actually, because it, it kind of showed that scientists, um, perhaps this was a bit naive of me, but I'd always used to think that um, when scientists wrote popular science books or did TV programmes, they were always kind of, you know, presenting what was the consensus of the day within the scientific community or most scientists would agree with it. Um, but actually it seems like a lot of scientists kind of use their, their public facing material to promote their own theories um, that, that not necessarily everyone in the scientific community agrees. Yeah, that's interesting. Is that, it, it, would you say that was true today as well? I think so, yeah, because actually this... This came up in quite a lot of the other books that we've reviewed this year. Um, I mean, Hawking did this as well with A Brief History of Time. Um, in some of the chapters, he kind of spoke about his ideas about like the fate of the universe and unification of physics. And he was really focusing on ideas that, um, that he kind of preferred and not everyone in the scientific community would have agreed with them. Um, and again, I mean... Um, Carlo Ravelli wrote a book this year called, um, or published a book this year called Halgoland, um, which uh, Chanda Prescott-Weinstein reviewed for us. Um, and she said that um, he takes a specific position on the interpretation of quantum mechanics. Um, and again, that's that's kind of his personal preferred um, interpretation. Mm. Um and likewise, there was another book um, reviewed this year called Shell Beach, um, The Search for the Final Theory. And this is by um, someone called Jasper Grimstrup. He's a physicist, but he's really kind of struggled to get research grants um, to pursue his ideas about like the, the theory of everything. Um, but he's actually um, received support through crowdfunding um, to pursue his ideas. And he's written this book that's really about his idea um oh, it's just kind of interesting isn't it from a, you know from a science communication point of view that, that if you're not well versed in this science and then you read for example carlo ravelli saying it about like for me if i read carlo ravelli reading uh, writing something about quantum physics i assume that it's sort of 
as you say, it's it's the prevailing theory in it. But it, you have to have a quite a in depth knowledge of something, and you probably wouldn't be reading a popular science book if you had that in depth knowledge. Yeah, yeah, that that occurred to me as well when I kind of noticed this. I thought um, initially, is that is that fair to kind of write this popular science book promoting your own theory as if it were the the kind of scientific consensus but then on the other hand if people are like aware that it's just one idea of many then it might also be a good thing um because i suppose it can it can show that there's agreement uh, that there's disagreement sorry between experts and scientists get things wrong and it takes time and lots of ideas and experimentation and evidence and um for kind of a consensus to emerge. And I suppose perhaps people would have been more aware of this um, when George Gamow and Fred Hoyle wrote their books because they were both quite prominent figures um, and this debate was ongoing. Um, whereas I couldn't really think of an obvious thing um, today where, where two famous scientists are publicly promoting ideas that very obviously contradict each other. I think the trick in those books, Laura, is to make sure that when you're talking about new stuff, you make quite clear what has been established to date and then yeah. make quite clear that the bits that you're going to promote are your own views on the matter and not uh-huh. pull the wool over people's eyes. And I think that's where the the trick is on a good popular science book, you will sort of give credit to what's accepted and make quite clear that distinction. It was interesting you mentioned yeah. that Shell Beach book because that was actually self-published and it was uh-huh. kind of as a payback for the people who'd crowdfunded the author um they'd funded him he couldn't get money from conventional streams and so he was um you know said he would write the book um as a kind of thank you for them supporting him um but yeah we're always a little bit wary of uh, self-published books um quite rightly i think but um um, I just wanted to say as well on uh, Fred Hoyle, this is definitely not a book that's been released recently, but Fred Hoyle wrote a science fiction novel called The Black Cloud. I highly recommend it to anybody with any interest in science fiction or the history of science. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. That actually reminds me, there was a scientist who came up to Fred Hoyle because he was clinging to his steady state theory, even after like the evidence of the cosmic microwave background had come out and stuff. Um and someone came up to him, another scientist came up to him at a conference who was like not convinced and thought he should let go of the idea of steady state. And he said, I've read some of your science fiction. I much prefer it to your <laughs> science or something. Like that. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's quite good. I, I wouldn't yeah. pick up any of his science books, but yeah, his science fiction is great. Yeah, <laughs> I'll have to, have to check that one out. I'm not a big science fiction fan, but maybe that's because I haven't read enough of it. Um, would you think would, is that a good place to start? I mean, obviously, it's a very personal choice, but I think it is. I think it's it's. Um, I think what's interesting about it, from my point of view, is that it's written at a particular time, and just the way that astronomy was done in those days is really interest. You know, it's really interesting for me as someone who's interested in astronomy, just to read about a very kind of hard science although maybe the science isn't actually correct in it, but it's sort of founded in hard science and it's certainly founded in what actually was happening in astronomy um, observatories and things at the time. And just reading about that, it's really evocative of a particular time in, in, in the history of science. And I just think it's, uh, yeah, you might find it interesting from that angle, I think, Mitty. Speaking of science fiction, 
Um, one of the books reviewed this year is by Cheryl Vint, and it's called Science Fiction. Uh-huh. What a great yeah, link. That's right. <laughs> the art of a podcast host, Andrew. You're... <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cheryl Vint is um, an author and professor of science fiction media studies. Um, and she talks about how fiction can influence reality because, um, you know, we think that science fiction is, is looking at is kind of is influenced by the science available at the time but actually there's um it goes it goes both ways really because um for example um there's a book called silent spring which was written by someone called rachel carson um and this kind of imagined a future where pesticides had wiped out wildlife and it was a really bleak vision of the future I should mention that Silent Spring is actually mostly a non-fiction book, but it starts with a kind of science fiction story um, that's set in a fictional American town called Anytown, USA. And in this story, um, Carson describes how all life there has been killed off by the use of pesticides like DDT. Um, and it seems like having that fictional component of the book um, really added to the impact that it had on people and helped them to connect with the potential consequences of chemicals like that on a deeper level. And this is actually credited with um, like rejuvenating the environmental movement and um, ultimately leading to, to the beginning of the Environmental Protection Agency. Um, and yeah, the, the, this idea really interested me that um, that, that might actually be more powerful, that that fiction than facts because I suppose humans are very emotional and we're maybe often convinced more by emotional responses to something like fiction where a scary vision of the future is given um, than just by facts and numbers and statistics. Um, so that interested me. Yeah, that's definitely a thing, isn't it? I think there's you know, I, I, I'm also a lecturer in wildlife filmmaking, right? And there's this, this whole thing about narrative being so incredibly powerful. And it, 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 if you're looking at climate change and things, you can't you can't just hammer people with the facts of climate change. I, I hesitate to use the word facts, but in, in this particular case, we're getting as close to fact as we possibly can. Um, it's 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 kind of if you just sit in in front of people on a television screen with a talking head and tell them that the the world's um, in a lot of trouble and you need to change the way that you behave. Everybody's going to switch off. But if, if you tell them a story about how that's happening, then people start to be, oh, okay, and, and feeling it a bit more differently. I interviewed Cheryl Vint, actually, for my other podcast, The Cosmic Shed. Um, we always have to, it's an unwritten rule that we have to plug that in December, <laughs> the December episode of the Physics World <laughs> Stories podcast. And um, you could listen to that. Uh, back in the archive of the cosmic shed and um yeah I, there was one thing that really struck me about that which was that she gets paid to research science fiction and i realized that i was in the wrong job <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah but speaking of climate science how to talk to a science denier by lee mcintyre now is that just climate science? That seems to be all different types of science that's being denied at the moment. Yeah, yeah. So um, in this book, Lee McIntyre, who's a philosopher of science, he um, looks at a whole range of different um, issues where, where people seem to refute science. He Looking from like um, 
flat earthers to anti-vaxxers to um all, all kinds of different people climate deniers as well um but he he really talks about the the psychology of of why people might um deny reason in in this way and um and what the best ways to approach speaking to people are because I heard a while back, um, I don't know if you heard this as well, but I heard about this thing called the backfire effect, where um, if someone has a particular position, if you present them with evidence that um, contradicts that position, they actually um, believe their own position even more strongly. It, it doesn't sway them. But um, that that study was never actually replicated. Um and there are other psychological studies which Lee McIntyre looks at that um, that seem to suggest that there are ways of speaking to people that can can sway their their perspectives. Um, and one of those ways is really you know being very respectful of people and understanding where they're coming from and caring about their values. Um, and I suppose that relates to um, the idea that you know humans are emotional and um we have to understand that um that there are emotional because he's had he, he's had direct experience of that hasn't he because lee mcintyre um he also featured in uh, an article about fighting flat earthers that um is still the number one article on the physics world website in fact it was written by rachel brazil who reviewed the book that we've just talking about um and it just won't get off the number one spot in physics world but it's been there all year and um, he went to see, I think I believe he went to flat earth conferences and talked to people who believe that the earth is flat. And that was really interesting to, and as you say, presenting more evidence just doesn't cut the mustard with them. Um, uh, and it takes time and energy to um, make someone think, uh, you know, differently. And in fact, it's, it's very difficult. And uh, the more evidence you supply somebody, the more counter arguments they'll just come up with. And it kind of got to some sort of ridiculous levels of, um, it's just exhausting. Um, so I can I can fully understand that. Um, yeah, it's difficult. It's difficult. I'm not sure there's an easy answer. Um, but it's been great for the Physics World website because that article <laughs> keeps getting read every week in week. It's always number one on our website about fighting flat, earth, flat earthers. <laughs> That's, that's that's kind of uh, great and also disappointing. Um, there's <laughs> there's loads of lovely stuff on that website, everyone. You don't have to just go for that one. Go for the real physics on that. It's a lovely thing. Uh, but um, I yeah, it's a funny one, isn't it? I do. Do you have a, a a sense from reading the book about why people believe this? Stuff? Yeah. So um, it seems like um, Rachel Brazil, who reviewed it, mentioned that um, there are lots of personal and political reasons as well um why people um believe certain things and a lot of it comes from this kind of distrust of authority um and distrust of science um and i suppose that that can be um you can understand certain people's um perspectives in that way if they feel like the authorities haven't looked out for them before or the government hasn't looked out for them before then why should they believe that it's in their best interest um and i suppose understanding where they're coming from is a starting point to to knowing how to speak to them about these issues mm, yeah no it's an interesting thing isn't it i think the um the obvious example at the moment for me is is, is vaccines right and it it's it's really um 
it's really tempting in a way to be exasperated by um, people who, you know, anti-vaxxers and things, and just people, not necessarily anti-vaxxers, but people who are reticent about, about vaccines. But the thing that I have to keep reminding myself is that in a way I'm in quite a privileged position in my understanding of the science of vaccines, because I know people who work on vaccines because I have an understanding of science because I'm a science communicator. And for a lot of people, the first time that they heard about, well, this is the first time they've heard about vaccines, apart from some vague recollection about MMR, right, which is complete nonsense, but they remember that from the press, and something in their childhood. And then this comes along, and you can understand why there might be some sort of mistrust in there whereas to me who understands how vaccines work and understands it just seems utterly ridiculous so to try and understand where those people are coming from in these other areas um might be a, a good way to go although to be perfectly honest with you if somebody doesn't believe that the moon landings happened I, i've given up and you know it doesn't doesn't matter to me that much. It's 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 a shame for them because it's one of the most amazing things that we've ever done in terms of, um, you know, human spirit and engineering. But it's only them that's missing out if they don't believe it. <laughs> yeah, I that didn't feature in the review actually. I don't know if Lee McIntyre mentioned that in the book, but um, there's a great uh, sketch. I think it's a Mitchell and Webb sketch where they they speak to um the someone who's denying the moon landing and they're saying if um oh let's convince let's convince everyone that we've landed on the moon what are they going to ask well they're going to ask how we got there they're going to want to see the rocket so we'll have to build a rocket and then go through all the things that they'd have to do and by the time that they've done what they'd need to do to convince everyone they've done what they need to do to get there (laughs) (laughs) I suppose it's always a lot. I suppose it's always quite a nuanced, Andrew, because I think with the vaccines, you can be pro-vaccines, but you can question whether yeah, absolutely you know, should think... they be given to under 18s, to young children, to people under 30. So you can have a more nuanced view about vaccines are good for certain people, but is it right that everybody has them? You know, because there are marginal benefits for some groups. So I think the danger is some sort of genuine debate about vaccines that's kind of lost by people who are completely opposed to them on baseless grounds drowning out sort of some more genuine concerns. So I think always it's a bit of a nuanced argument. Though with the flat earth, you can't have half <laughs> a flat earth. <laughs> you know, it's either flat or it's not. Um, but I think some topics maybe aren't always mm-hmm. completely black and white. Um, even with climate change, you know, you can think, well, it's a genuine thing that's happening, but the question is then how do you mitigate it? What steps do you take? And you can have sort of doubts about the best way to deal with it rather than having doubts about that it's happening. Um, so I think there's always scope for nuance. And that's one thing that's always lost these days, nuance. It's my my uh, thing that I always feel, you know, you always have to fall into one camp or the other on every topic. And sometimes it's not always easy answers, especially for politicians. They don't like nuance or to say, I don't know, or I'm not sure, you know. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, what do I know? I don't the, know. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, but that's very nice of you to say. I don't. Um, I think. Uh, well, politicians do, do do as a general rule. 
um, sometimes like to lie. We did a, a podcast on um, politicians and their difficulties with the truth back in the past. Um, you might want to go and revisit that one. Um, but you can find that episode if you delve back into the archive for the Physics World Stories podcast. And I'd like to thank Laura Hiscott and Mateen Girardi for joining me. And I'd like to not thank Mateen for beating me in the quiz and Laura for hosting the quiz. I hope you've all enjoyed listening to the Physics World Stories podcast this year. And of course, um, I hope you've also found some ideas for book presents or perhaps presents for yourself whilst listening to this episode as ever. And we'll be back next month when we'll be talking about the James Webb Space Telescope. If it launches. Here's hoping it does. And thank you very much for listening. Physics World.